Parashat Lech Lecha. I'll tell you a story. It's a bit of a challenging story. Uh, some of you may have heard of the blues of a Rebbe, Rebbe Saul Spira. He was uh, the descendant of a very long line of great Hasidic masters, um, all the way back to the Baal Shem Tov. And um, he was caught up in the maelstrom that we've come to know as the Holocaust. And he lost his family, his wife, his children. Eventually survived, made it to Brooklyn, where he remarried and rebuilt his family. And uh, some of the stories that he has to tell um, are best saved for Tisha B'Av. But there's a book that I've mentioned to you before that I, I highly encourage you to read. It was written by a woman named Yaffa Eliyah, who passed away not that long ago. She was a member of the President's Commission on the Holocaust for the Holocaust Museum. She did a PhD. Um, her doctoral thesis was on Holocaust survivors. Um, and while she was in Brooklyn College, um, and she interviewed hundreds and hundreds of survivors. Brooklyn at one time was one of the largest concentrations of Holocaust survivors in the world. And as a result of this, she heard many of their stories. And she found many of them to be inspiring. You know, we're used to the Holocaust story that ends with, you know, horrible, horrible things. But there were many stories that came out of the Holocaust that were amazing, that were inspiring, miracles. So she collected these. She felt it was a mitzvah to share them. And she published it in a book called Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust. She writes in her introduction that she believes this is the first newly collected collection of Hasidic tales in 100 years. And I really believe it's a mitzvah to read this book. I really do. For years I read it every year on Tisha B'Av in the afternoon. And in one of these stories, in one of these stories, he was, um, he was eventually, after being in the Anushka Road Camp, which was a, a little piece of hell that you could write volumes on, he ended up in, uh, in Bergen-Belsen, in the camp for foreign nationals. Uh, they had a section for all people with foreign passports. It was part of the Nazis' plan to negotiate, to use them as barter in the event that the war was lost, which it was quickly becoming lost. But they had the same conditions as everybody else, and they were in hell like everybody else. And um, as, as they neared the end of the war, and things for the Nazis, Baruch Hashem, went from bad to worse, one of their issues was manpower. They had no, they didn't have enough personnel. They were taking people away from the camps to take them to the front lines, and uh, so they needed replacements. So they started to use Hitler Youth. They brought kids who were trained in the Hitler Youth. Imagine that in 1944, a kid could have been in the Hitler Youth uh, from 1933 for like 10 years. Just think about what that does to a child's mind to be in that kind of a background. So some of these were kids who were trained to be sadistic, brutal, I mean, they were worse than the adults sometimes. And one of these kids, 13, maybe 14 years old, dressed up as a Nazi Obersturmführer, a, a captain, a commandant, is now leading the camp. And the Nazis actually delighted in this because as painful as it was for the Jews, to add insult to injury, the fact that the one torturing you was a child, was a kid, made it even worse. So one night they're in the barracks and they're finally being allowed to fall into a fitful, if you can call it sleep. And all of a sudden, screams, shouting, yelling, lights turned on, dogs. Right? You had 
in the event such a thing occurred, you had literally seven seconds to be in front of your bunk with your cap in your hand. If you, if you didn't get out of bed, quickly, couldn't call it a bed, quickly enough, they could shoot you on the spot. And you're standing there, try doing this, by the way. I mean, I know what this was like in the army. It was, it was horrible. And I can't even imagine in reality. Try doing this once. If you want to get a sense of, just jump out of bed. And, 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 and rubber truncheons flying and dogs running around. And the next thing they know, they're being herded out of the barracks and they're running. They don't know where they're running. And they see they're heading to the gate. They have no idea what's going on. And then they run them out of the gate in the moonlight. And they still don't know where they're going. And they run a couple of kilometers. It's not like running a couple of kilometers like you and I. I mean, they're on, you know, a couple hundred calories a day. They're emaciated skeletons. And they come to this open clearing. And there are two large pits. And the pits are full of bodies. And they suddenly realize where they've been running to on this cursed night. And they line them up. And this 12-year-old Nazi with a big smile on his face, says, Jews, we're gonna play a game. You see before you the pits, these are the pits of life. And everyone here is gonna to have to jump. And if you can jump across the pit, then you'll go back to live another day. And if not, pfft, he shoots off the gun to demonstrate his point. Now the Blue Rebbe had a friend. They had become sort of Comrades, as it were. The friend was a maskil. He was a anti-religious, described himself as an atheist. If there was a place in the world a person has a right to be an atheist, it's, it's Bergen-Belsen. And they would have theological debates, the two of them. And because of that, they became close. And this fellow, the way the story reads, used to call him Spira. He didn't believe in rabbis. And you have to understand, the rabbis in the camp, the ones that were hidden from the Nazis, because if the Nazis found out you were a rabbi, they were like everybody else. You didn't call the guy a rabbi in the camp, that was a death sentence. So he looks at him and he says, Spira, this is ridiculous. Look at us. There's no way we're going to jump across this pit. Let's not give them the satisfaction. If we're going to leave this world, let's not play their game. We'll sit on the edge of the pit, and they can do what they want. And the Blue Rebbe looks at him and he says, if God has decreed that pits should be dug and Jews should jump, then pits will be dug and Jews will jump. And if we arrive in the world of truth a moment later in the Olam Ha'emes, then so be it. But we're jumping. And they're having this little argument as they're standing in line waiting to jump. And everybody, one after another in front of them, is jumping and falling into the pit and the Nazis are shooting at them. And they're sure. We, we, don't even, we can't even comprehend what that is. And they get close and it's clear that it's going to be their turn in a second. And he grabs this Moscow's hand and he begins to, as close as he can come to run, he says, we're jumping. And he runs with him in his hand they run up to the pit and they close their eyes and they jump. And they somehow, by some miracle, land on the other side. True story. And the Moscow's looking at him and tears are flowing down his face. He looks at him and says, how did you do that? How did we do that? How did you do that? And the Blue Rebbe looks at him and says, I was hanging on to the coattails of my ancestors. He looks at him and says, how did you do that? And he looks back at him and he says, I was hanging on to yours. 
Why do I tell you this story? This is an interesting topic that everybody thinks of next week in Parshas Vayera. But it really begins in this week. Right? Gash Baruch comes to, we're finally ready to begin the Jewish journey. The world was created, the flood happened, the tower, everything. And now, enter Avram. And what's the first discussion that Hashem has with the first Jew? Lech Lecha, go. Lech Lecha, Me'artzacha, Me'olatcham, Betavich, Le'art Shareka. Uh, you gotta go. It doesn't say come in, it doesn't say hello. This is the only person in the world who believes Hashem exists pretty much, maybe Malkitzedek. Okay. And he says, I want you to go. I'm not telling you where you're gonna go, I just want you to go. You gotta leave. You gotta leave your home. You gotta leave your town. You gotta leave your country. You gotta leave it all behind. Where you're going, if you wanna start this journey, the first thing you have to do is you have to let go. Okay. And it's interesting that the language here is lech lecha. It doesn't say lech la'aretz hashareka. It says lech lecha. That's an interesting word. What does that mean, lech lecha? Two possibilities. Go for you or go to you. Interesting. And Rashi here says, what does this mean? Letovatcha uleanatcha. I want you to go for your benefit, for your pleasure. Don't go for me. <laughs> go for you. That's a challenging idea. Like, where do you think Avram is going? Avram is going because Hashem asked him to go. In fact, it's very clear, if you look in the Pasuk, hey, what does it say? It says, uh, sorry. Vayelech Avram kasher dibir Hashem. Avram goes as Hashem said to him. Etc. Avram is going because Hashem told him to go. So what does it mean, go for you? So, Chazal elaborates, and Rashi elaborates. Hashem actually promised Avram three things. He said, listen, if you go to that place, right? Rashi says, what does it mean, right? you will be blessed? Um, I'm going to make you wealthy. And es gadol, I'm going to make you famous. And v'nivrachu v'chakol mishpachot adamah, through you will be blessed the families of the world. Kivi Yitzchaki Karel Chazara, he eventually tells him, in Israel you will have progeny. You'll, you'll become wealthy, you'll become famous, you'll have children. And by the way, that is exactly what unfolds in this parsha. Right? Avram goes to Israel, Hashem makes a famine, he goes down to Egypt. What happens to him in Egypt? He becomes wealthy. He will eventually fight a war. He becomes famous. And he has a son, Yishmael. And next week, he has another son, Yitzchak. Now let's think about this for a minute. You're Avram. You're 75 years old. Nobody knows who you are. You're some nutcase who jumped into a furnace if you buy the Medrash, right? And, 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 and you have no children. You know, it's not clear what your job is. You're obviously, if you become wealthy, it means now you're not wealthy. You're a poor schnook of a guy who's married, he's 75, he's got no kids. Life is not great. And God, Hashem himself, comes to you and says, listen, if you go on the journey, I'm going to make you rich, famous, whatever. So of course you go. Now the Mishnah Pirkei says that Avram is tested. Remember this? 
בעשרה ניסיונות. Avram is tested with ten tests. Now the Mishnah does not specify exactly what these tests are. With the exception of maybe one, maybe two, the tenth test is the Akedah. It's actually a debate whether that's the tenth test, but I'm not going to go there right now. And pretty much everybody agrees this is the first. This is a test. So the obvious question is, how is this a test? Why is this a test? Wouldn't you do this? Why is this a test? Not only that, but we have a Mishnah that directly contradicts Rashi's understanding of what God is saying. Can anybody tell me what that Mishnah is? Because Rashi is saying, don't do this for me. Do this because I'm going to reward you. Do this for you. Somebody quote me a Mishnah, a teaching, that seems to say exactly the opposite. Anybody know? Yeah? Don't be like servants who serve the master to get a reward. Do things in this world not to get a reward. Do things because Hashem asked you to do it. Right? You imagine you get married and, uh, you know, you love your wife and uh, first Friday you're married, you buy her some flowers. That's a mensch thing to do. And you come home with the flowers. My wife says, well, those are beautiful flowers. And you say to her, what are you going to give me for them? That's not a good way to start your marriage. <laughs> this is the beginning of the marriage, right, Avram? What is this? What does this mean? Do it for you. And I'll tell you something interesting. If you look carefully, I kind of pulled one over on you just now. Because it's true that the Pasuk says this. Now, if you have a Chumash, I think it's worth your while to pull out a Chumash if you want. Beginning of Pasuk, but if not on Shabbos. Okay? Vayelech Avram. This is Pasuk Dal. Hashem says, go, this is what I'm going to do for you. Okay, so Avram goes. Vayelech Avram. I'm going to read two verses. You ask me the question. You ready? I'm going to read two verses. You ask me the question. Vayelech Avram, kasher diberi lav Hashem. And Avram went, as Hashem told him. Vayelech itolot, and Lot goes with him. Vayavram ben chamesh shanim v'shivim shana v'tzeto mecharan. And Avram is 75 years old when he leaves Haran. Okay. Vayikach Avram et Sarai ishto v'et Lot ben Achiv. And Avram takes Sarai ishto and Lot. V'et kol v'chusham asher achashu, whatever property they have. V'et anefesh asher asu becharan. He was a little key of organization, right? And they head out on the journey to Canaan and they come to Canaan. Does anybody notice a problem here? Yeah. Pardon? Ah! He already left and then it says he leaves. Why does he do that? He goes on a journey. Right? Avram goes, as Hashem told him, takes Lot with him. He's 75 when he leaves. And then it says again, Avram takes Sarai, his wife, and Lot, who was already taken. And all their property. And they go. They begin the journey to go. So they're going twice. Now I don't believe that the Torah is suggesting that Avram took two different journeys. That does not make a lot of sense. So what do you think this could mean? Just out of curiosity. Did anybody notice this before? How many times have we read this parsha? right? Ever notice this? How many guys noticed this before? Okay, right? You're way ahead of me. I didn't notice this until I was like 35 years old. Every year I read Lecha, never notice this. Right there in front of you, right? We do that all the time. We're so busy seeing what we always see, we don't see what's in front of us, but okay. So what do you think this could be? Why do you think this, yeah? 
Speak up. He went for two reasons. He went for two reasons. Excellent. He's on a journey, but there are two different things that are motivating him. Now, the first is obvious. What's the first reason he goes? Because Hashem told him to go. Well, that's an interesting question. The Torah doesn't tell me what the second motivation is. It tells me what the first is. It does not tell me what the second is. And it's interesting to me because if Hashem tells you to go and that's where you're going, why do you need another motivation? That should be enough. By the way, Avram's got Sarah, his wife. He's got Lot, his nephew. And he's got stuff. Now, I understand that stuff is in the second reason. Because that's less important. And I understand that Lot is more important than the stuff. But why is Sarai in the second piece? Shouldn't Sarai be in the first piece? Like he goes with Sarai? Right? That's a whole interesting question. Right? Like, I get that Avram goes, and that's either amazing or, yeah, obviously. But it's pretty amazing that Sarai goes. Because Sarai, at least if you're buying Pshat in the Pasuk, I mean, if you want to go Medrash and Zohar, so, you know, I mean, Sarai was a prophetess, and she's a higher level than Avram, and that's all straight in the Gemara. But if you just read the verses, Sarai doesn't have this conversation with God. Can you imagine your husband's 75 years old? He's a shtickle shnook. He's not very wealthy. He's got no kids. Like, you know, okay, but they like each other, you know. He says, listen, I heard a voice. God tells me we have to go. Okay, uh, where are we going? I don't know. But wherever God says we're going to go, we're going to go. Now, how many wives do you know at 75 would say, okay, let's go? <laughs> it's just, whoa. So Sarai must be on a high level. What's going on? So I want to share with you two ideas. And they're not just about the parsha. These are things that are worth thinking about. The first comes from Moshe Feinstein. Moshe Feinstein has a magnificent sefer called Darash Moshe, which is a collection of some of his drashot, some of his homilies on the parsha. Many of them, I mean, he doesn't need my approbation, are amazing. Here's one piece. Listen to what Rav Moshe says. Okay? Pirish Rashi right? Rashi says, you're going for your own benefit, right? This is kind of strange. My time in Nechshav Zenisayon. Why is this considered a test? Hashem says you're going to become wealthy. Everybody goes in a distance for Parnasa. I'm traveling this week for Parnasa. It may not be my personal Parnasa, but I'm, you know, one of the many things that Hashem has blessed me to have the privilege to do is to raise funds for the yeshiva. And everybody does this. People go on business trips, right? Even if a person isn't sure he's going to make money there, you go on these trips. Here it's clear. Hashem says you're going to become wealthy. Well, of course you go. Listen to what he says. The test of Avram here. That he didn't question. Even though he doesn't understand what's the point of this. Why is Hashem, it's true that I may, but imagine if, I'm, uh, you know, if, if I feel, or if somebody tells me, you should go on a trip so that you can learn some Torah. If you go on this trip, you'll learn Torah. You're like, I'm sitting in the base Medrash in the Rova. Why would I go anywhere to learn Torah? I have a cousin. I love him dearly. We're close. 
And he got into like visiting the grave of Rav Nachman, Uman, right? And he especially loves to go there, Rosh Hashanah. He doesn't always get to go, but he loves it. One day, when, a couple of years in a row, he tried to convince me to come with him to Uman. You got to come. It's amazing. We're going to go to the Breslov, the grave of the Nachman of Breslov. It's unbelievable. I'm like, okay, you know. Finally, I said to him, tell me something. I live in Efrat. I live 15 minutes from the grave of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Why would I travel to Ukraine to visit a Rebbe, who was Nifter 150 years ago? Like, that's nuts. So, Hashem tells Avram, he has to go to Israel. If Hashem wants, and, and, and Rav Moshe points this out, right? Um, Hashem could bless him with wealth here. My time of Matrichola, why is Hashem causing him to go to Israel? It makes no sense. In other words, the Nisayon here is that what Hashem is asking of him does not make any sense. Now, we may feel that going to Israel is special because we've grown up with this, but Avram doesn't know that. Right? Even if it isn't a great Tircha, this isn't like, you know, we have to get on a plane and buy a ticket. This is going from southern Iraq all the way to the land of Israel. It's, it's a. It, it's a journey of weeks. It's uprooting your whole life. It's leaving everything behind. For what? Why can't you do this here? What makes this a Nisayon is that Avram doesn't understand why he's doing this, what the point of all this is. That's what makes it a Nisayon. And he concludes by saying, therefore the Pesach says, Walk before me, says Hashem to Avram in our parsha. In other words, Avram goes before Hashem, because he's willing to do what Hashem asked him, even though he doesn't yet understand why he's doing it. Now, this is a deep idea. And he's so young, on a certain level, is when it makes no sense. Right? Next week, Hashem is going to tell Avram, take your son, your only son, the son you love so much. Offer him up. Now there's a big debate exactly what Hashem means, does Avram understand what he means, but whatever it is, it's clear that Avram thinks that he's supposed to shecht his son. He's supposed to sacrifice his son. That's what you did back then. You served your God, Molech, and you offered up your firstborn or one of your child as a sacrifice. In fact, the Arabs till this day have a special festival called the Eid al-Fitr, right? Which is called the Chag korban It's related to Eid al-Atcha. And it's a three-day festival. You know what they celebrate? They celebrate that Abraham, who's all of our ancestor, ended child sacrifice. That's how they look at this. It's a special Chag they celebrate for the Akedah. Now they have a difference of opinion. They think the Akedah was Yishmael, we think it was Yitzchak, okay. But, but fascinating idea. So Avram, who is living, his entire life is about ending paganism and child sacrifice. And Hashem says, no, no, you're going to be a pagan. Makes no sense. Hashem says to Avram, you're going to have a son Yitzchak and he's going to be the future of the Jewish people. And Yitzchak isn't married yet. He has no children. Avram should say to God, listen, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. You're, you're, you're telling me to offer up Yitzchak, but you told me that the future is through Yitzchak. And in my imaginary conversation, Hashem says, you're 100% right. Now go do it. Right? God comes to the Jewish people. He says, listen, I want you to build a state of time. I want you to build a state of Israel. You know what the Jewish people should say to God? That's nuts. You just took six million of us. Maybe even seven million. We're, we're wallowing in DP camps. There's nothing left. 
And the ones who are in Israel, I mean, they have no standing army that's serious. We're outnumbered 15 to 1. We have no tanks. We have no planes. We have no artillery guns. No airplanes. This is crazy. Hashem should say, you're right. This is nuts. Now go do it. Nisayon is when you pursue, even when it makes no sense, because you trust the source. I actually believe this is one of the fundamental issues in a healthy marriage. Okay? Ladies, I apologize if I'm going to step on any toes here, but you're going to get married, and you're going to marry someone, God willing, you know, find a partner because you think you understand them. I met my wife, you know, four months later we were engaged, was it? Three months later we were engaged. I wanted to get two weeks later. I, I, I told my parents we were getting married in two weeks. It was a whole back and forth. That's a whole interesting story. We ended up getting married in January, right? Because this was the one, and I thought I really knew her, right? And then you get married, and you discover they make no sense. <laughs> they really don't make sense. They, they make no sense. And if you think you understand them, you'll, in fact, when you figure out you can't possibly understand them, that's when you start to understand them. And they ask you things that make no sense. Buy a carpet, it's white. Why do you buy a carpet as white? It's going to get dirty. So now you can't wear your shoes when you go up the carpet. Makes no sense. Why don't you buy a black carpet? Nope. That's just what they do. Right? Take out the garbage. But the garbage is half empty. Take out the garbage. Makes no sense. Okay. You know why I have a great marriage? Because she doesn't have to make sense. Because if my wife asked me to do something... By the way, my wife knows this. Like I said to her once, you got to take responsibility because... Because if you ask me something, even if it makes no sense, I'm going to do it. So if you're not sure if it makes sense, you should tell me because, you know. It doesn't always have to make sense. If you get married and think you're going to, you have to understand everything, you'll have a tough time. And if you live life and you think, I have to understand it before I do it, you're going to have a tough life. Because there's a lot in this world we don't understand. Hashem says to Avram, you don't need to understand me. You just need to trust me. You need to love me. That's okay. That's the first idea. You know what the second idea of a Nisayon is? This is fascinating. What's the root of the word Nisayon? Nase. The essence of a Nisayon is that it's impossible. A true Nisayon cannot be. It cannot be that you offer up Yitzchak, and yet Yitzchak will be the future of the Jewish people. By the way, there is a Kabbalistic idea, the Zohar talks about this, right? That even though Yitzchak comes back, Yitzchak is on the altar, Avram's ready to offer him up. Avram knows with absolute certainty that Yitzchak is going to be the future of the Jewish people, and Avram knows with absolute certainty that he's about to kill Yitzchak. That's impossible. But that's what Hashem wants. Now this is very dangerous. This is very dangerous, and this is not for tonight, although if you're curious, we can do this in the Q&A. How far do you go with this? That's an interesting question. How you, you know, but okay. It doesn't have to make sense. It's beyond my comprehension. I don't need to understand it all. There is something miraculous about a true Nisayon. You know what the miracle of a true Nisayon demonstrates? It demonstrates that Hashem runs the world. It demonstrates that you're not alone. We shouldn't be here. We really shouldn't be here. We went up to Emek Abacha in the Golan Heights and I told you just the littlest bit of the story of the Yom Kippur War and you sit there and you realize this is crazy. 25 tanks hold off 650 tanks for 24 hours. 
and we lose. And then they just stop. It's crazy. You look at the statistics. You know, I have a friend, Elliot Chodoff. He uh, used to um, uh, teach, teach or advise at West Point. And he eventually made Aliyah. Um, and I met him because we were in the second intifada before I went to Florida. Uh, we were going through some very tough times and, we, and, and I needed some strategic advice. And he came to Efrat um, to give us, among other things, we, we, we got to have some healthy strategic discussions and I learned a lot strategically from him. You know, just to give you an example, we had uh, machine gun positions that were up on top of the hill. In the case down below that, you know, mobs, Arabs would come from Bethlehem and attack Efrat. Um, and that's the worst place to put them. Even though every strategic book in, the, in, in every army tells you grab the high ground, think about it. If there's a group of men and they're coming across the plain and you're sitting up here, in order to hit somebody coming, right, if you fall short, you'll miss them. And if you shoot too long, you'll miss them. But if you're on the same level as them, then all you have to do is be in the right direction. But you don't have to find the right... So it makes no sense. All these sorts of strategic ideas. He told me an amazing story. He said that West Point, which is arguably one of the most prestigious officer's courses in the world, um, it's a four-year course, right? We do officer's course in about six months. They do it in four years. I'll leave you to judge whether you need four years, but okay. And, um, and in the third year, that's the year when they do a six-month course on, 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 on developing strategic plannings, right? To, to learn how to plan a strategy, read a battlefield. Um, we do that in a week in Badakhar. I'm not sure what it takes them six months, but okay. So, so apparently, they give them a, an exercise at one point, towards the end of this course. And the exercise basically is, here are the forces that are arrayed against you. Um, this is the terrain, whatever. Come up with a battle plan. And they all go off into their working groups, and they spend a few hours, and one by one they come back and they say, okay, this is a trick. One of the things you learn in officer's course is, sometimes you can't succeed against the forces. You have to know when to pull back, when to retreat, when to grab the high ground. It's a trick, we're supposed to retreat. And the commanders tell them, no, it's not a trick, there's a solution to this. And they go back to the drawing board base and everything, and they can't sum up with a solution. And finally, as they get to evening after a whole day of this, they all gather together, nobody's come up with a solution. And the base commander comes to speak with them. This is tradition at West Point. The base commander comes to speak to them, and he says, you've probably figured out by now that there's something wrong with this equation. All right? We've given you the amount of forces you have, the forces arrayed against you, and what you need to do, and you can't come up with a solution, and you're right, there is no solution to this problem. Except that this is the story of the Israeli army in the Golan Heights. Sometimes you have to believe in the impossible. So I didn't have a heart. You know, if I was in West Point, I'd yell out, yeah, you need a different commander, but okay, right? <laughs> and Nisayon tells you you're not alone. There's, a, there's something miraculous. The ability to look at a pit and realize it's impossible to jump over this pit. But if Hashem says you're in this world, and if you have five seconds left in this world, there's something you're meant to do, then you need to try to jump over the pit. For whatever the reason. And that's where the Jewish journey begins. The Jewish journey begins when one individual says, I don't need to understand, and the impossible is possible. That's the beginning of our journey. There's a lot to think about. A lot. But that's a little bit of food for thought. I'm Parshat Lachacha.